Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. He asked me, what's your out pitch? And I said, it's my slider. And he said, we could throw that. But he's a great low ball side to side hitter. He really struggles with depth and a speed change. Your curveball is good enough. Put it on the plate. We'll strike him out. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's interview series from Phenom to the Farm, where we're talking to former professional baseball players to reminisce about their playing days and what they learned on their journey from amateur ball to the professional ranks. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today, we are joined by Barry Enright, former big league right-hander and currently a pitching coach in the D-back system. We talk about Barry's extremely successful college career at Pepperdine, West Coast baseball and pitching in an NCAA regional against Troy Tulowitzki and Evan Longoria, and how important combining command and confidence are, and the experience of transitioning his career full-time over to the Mexican League. We also talk some golf. If you follow Barry on social media, you know that Barry is very, very good at golf, so uh, safe to say this will likely be the only episode of this podcast that features a good Kevin Na story. Uh, episodes of From Phenom to Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, please do leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. College baseball season is officially a go. Joe Healy and Teddy Cahill are providing tons of good weekly content. Weekly pods of the new pod feature projection from uh, Ben Badler and Carlos Colazzo is great. I highly encourage everyone to go check that out. So as always, it is always a good time to be subscribed to BaseballAmericas.com. Also, if you are a, a sports movie or sports documentary fan, my other podcast, Big Screen Sports, me and Baseball America's J.J. Cooper uh, just released an episode yesterday talking about the incredible sports documentary, Senna. That is worth a, a watch if you have not seen it. So uh, if you have, go check out that episode. Uh, for future guest info this podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho. But for now, let's talk to Barry Enright. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he was a second-round pick of the D-backs in 2007 out of Pepperdine, former big league pitcher and champion of the 2020 TPC Champions Classic on the Outlaw Golf Tour, Barry Enright. Barry, thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate being here. Of course, you are the uh, you're the first person who's appeared on this podcast series who has won a golf tournament, a professional golf tournament. You've both pitched in the big leagues and won a professional golf tournament. Uh, right off the bat, what felt better, the golf win or your big league debut? I would definitely have to still say the big league debut. Um, you know, that was something that was a long time coming. Uh, baseball, obviously, golf always had the kind of the backseat. Baseball was always kind of flourished there. And so kind of getting that call, um, through my pitching coach, which is now my boss now, Dan Carlson, um, getting the call from him and be able to obviously head out to St. Louis stadium was, was pretty cool. So growing up in, in California, how did you balance baseball and golf and playing quarterback as well? A position that requires a, a lot of, a lot of focus. When you got into high school, how did you juggle three sports, especially when, football takes up a t- it takes a ton of time to be a quarterback 
Uh, you know, it, it was actually tough at times, as you can imagine. I mean, I did it kind of all through my childhood as, as a father now. It actually makes me respect my parents that much more of the time that they took uh, to be able to do it with me. Um, but quarterback, I think, looking back, quarterback, baseball, golf, even actually a little basketball kind of all flowed into one another. I think that every sport kind of ended up making me a better athlete in the, in the next one. And it's a big component that I kind of talk to kids and parents nowadays is being able to continue that athletic ability through all sports. Uh, but there was a time, there was a time myself after my sophomore year, which I played sophomore varsity uh, football and I was going to my junior season and kind of was getting a little attention for baseball and, and thought, why do I need football? And, uh, I, I kind of focused on baseball through that whole summer. Um, and ironically, that first preseason game came around for football. We lost uh, to, I believe it was Jesuit. And uh, I was actually in tears and kind of missed football so much along with was so bored of baseball at that time. And just kind of realized that being competitive in a different sport, um, being able to kind of transition, I wasn't ready to just be a one-sport athlete. Um, I, baseball was, like I said, it kind of got me burnt out. And, uh, I think you can start to narrow that down and focus when you're a little bit older, but through that high school setting, I think it was better for me, even though it seems more hectic, it was better for me to actually play multiple sports and, uh, and how each and every like kind of mental challenge to, um, physicality in each sport or, or agility work kind of blended, like I said, into the next, uh, just made me a better athlete and better, better uh, player in that each sport I played. So how did you get around to, to narrowing and deciding on baseball when it came time to pick what you were doing at the next level? Because you clearly, I mean, you have, you, you played quarterback, you, you clearly have golf talent. What makes baseball the play? Were you thinking like in the future, like I am the best at this. So, it, you know, and it's my chance to have the best or is it the thing you love the most kind of how do you when it gets down to brass tacks how do you make that decision um i was fortunate enough to have a little obviously a uh, few scholarship for football as well um uh, golf i had a golf coach actually before going into high school from the university of pacific in stockton where i grew up kind of could try to convince me to, to quit baseball and focus on golf um i think it goes back to my i mean my dad played baseball um, and football actually at Santa Clara when they had a football team, but baseball was his main sport. He was, uh, my coach through baseball, um, kind of growing up until he passed when I was 13. He was the first one to kind of like instill that love and, and putting that baseball in my hand. And I just think I kind of took to it a lot. Uh, you know, being going through little league, we had a team that went 80 and 0 through our 40 years. And you look back and you, and you see, how the dads and, and parents probably stacked that team probably illegally at, at, at some point uh, to make that happen. But uh, just kind of reading that winning mentality, like we were actually even talking about earlier, is uh, I think just made me fall in love with it. Being on that mound, uh, even though I played shortstop and, and all that kind of stuff through high school as well and through Little League, but being on that mound and being the person that kind of controlled everything uh, was even different than than football for me. You know, there was like a, a defensive side and an offensive side to football. I played a little defense too, but it was like going over to baseball, nothing started until that ball in my hand, like, you know, kind of went towards the batter. And so I think that adrenaline rush to feeling like in command of all things probably drew me even closer to that. And then eventually just got a decent amount of attention for it um, through high school 
um, and paved a way to obviously get um, get me to college. Well, normally on the show, I ask, you know, why did you settle on the school you went to? You know, how did you and you, you know you ended up at Pepperdine? I actually want to know how do coaches recruit against Pepperdine? Like, how do you talk someone out of going going to Malibu? How does how does another coach's another school's coach say? You see this nice campus? I need you to not go there. Uh, that's exactly how my mom actually got trapped in, and I don't even think it was my decision at that point. She walked up to the cafeteria, looked out uh, the big glass windows over to the ocean, and said, "Barry, you're going here." Um, <laughs> that that coupled in with a great education, she said, "Yeah, I don't think you have uh, any any say in this anymore." Joking, but I don't actually think she was joking. Um, I, I originally wanted to go to Stanford, to be honest. I, it was off from a NorCal standpoint. I didn't even know what Pepperdine was. When they called me the uh, first day, I, they called me and said, Pepperdine University, we want to offer you a scholarship, uh, such and such. And I said, thank you very much. And I hung up the phone member like, okay, uh, ASU called, uh, Cal called, Stanford called. I want to, those are guys, and Pepperdine was in the backseat. Um, until they kind of kept calling and met them uh, through like area code games and things like that. And of course, then you step foot on campus and it's like, wow, uh, I get to play here. You know, I get to play at the, at the Pacific Ocean. It was drastically different from coming from Stockton. Stockton now is a little bit more rough. It was nicer when I was kind of growing up, but it's a little rougher. And so going from Stockton to Malibu was quite the contrast. Um, and so Stanford, I didn't end up getting a scholarship there. Uh, I They told me I didn't have enough AP classes, which I see now they just wanted somebody else. What and a standard kind of, thing to say. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that it was just kind of God's work that got me over to Pepperdine. Uh, Steve Rodriguez was awesome. Coach Sean Kenny was my pitching coach who I took to very early. Steve Rodriguez is now someone that is still in my life. Um, and just developing those relationships with those people, um, going to Pepperdine, I was never – also kind of through high school, never a big party kid, went to a small Catholic high school. So kind of blending that into Pepperdine, not being a huge, maybe ASU campus of 70,000 kids probably really helped me to focus on school and baseball. You get to campus and for most guys who get to college ball, there's, there's an adjustment period, but how, how much, at least in the recruiting process, did they prep you to be, to say, Hey, you're going to be a part of a, you know, you're going to be a big part of our squad in your freshman year. And then like, how soon were you comfortable at the level? Because you did, you contributed right away to the point where you're the West coast conference, you know, freshman of the year. I, you know, I I think we actually had a pretty strong recruiting class. If I remember that year, I think we might've been even number two in the country. And, um, a lot of guys that I played with, Jason Dominguez, Adam Oberhowski, uh, guys that I played with in Erico games, some big arms. Um, I think when they had talked to me, um, you know, I actually came in as a two-way player. Uh, they took hitting away from me as my first start. I gave up like three or four runs in the, fir- in the first three innings. Um, but they had given me an opportunity to come in and say, hey, you have a chance to compete here for a weekend spot, which might not happen if I would have went to maybe a big Pac-10, obviously Pac-12 school now, or uh, someone that was a little bit bigger. They, they said, hey, this is your spot if you, if you want to compete and win it. And that was always kind of the best thing that I, I believed I had was just obviously being competitive. And then in college, it really helps to have command. Uh, I wasn't always the hardest thrower. I wasn't always the best stuff guy. I think that Probably nowadays, looking back with the tools we have now, would have been a little bit better in those departments. 
Um, but in college, it's all about command and, and exposing that strike zone, which we know is a little bit bigger than than when you get into minor league and big league baseball. And so, just a little um, bit. Yeah, you can. I remember going maybe three, four inches off the plate for strike one. The next one, it was eight inches off the plate. The next one's a foot off the plate. As long as you hit the catcher in the middle, you know, the middle of their body was strike three. And I, and, uh, I was able to kind of do that through my dad did a lot of things with me. Uh, now you can see it now as like variable training or different hit, different targets. Everything was kind of centered back into just having feel and command, whether it's, it's throwing a football, shooting a basketball, hitting a golf ball. Uh, developing feel at such a young age that I think it really helped me through my command um, through those years. And like I said, I think command is king, especially in um, in college baseball. Jumping all the way ahead to to what you're doing now, your most recent baseball job and, and coaching in short season. If you had signed out of high school that that first year you were at Pepperdine, instead you would have probably been in rookie ball in rookie ball like in Hillsboro or maybe in Low A if they had thought you that advanced. What did you get out of that first year at Pepperdine on the field and off that you that you might not have been able to get or might not you might not have been ready for if you had if you had jumped straight into pro ball? Honestly, I think it's the the discipline and the time management. Um, I think obviously you face great competition. We had a, a great uh, out of conference schedule as well, um, where we faced you know the the USC's and the Long Beaches and the Cal State Fullertons and and such and such. And you know we even had good teams in our conference at the time when San Diego and you end up having, you know, Brian Mash, John, uh, Josh Romanski, uh, guys through there, Aaron Pareda, Scott Cousins at, at USF. We had some talented teams we faced there as well, but going back to like just stepping foot on campus, we, I mean, we had five 30 in the morning practices all fall. Um, you know, Tuesday, Thursday was running Monday, Wednesday, Friday was lifting. Um, you had on off field stuff or on field stuff in groups, uh, after class, you know, I went from 5.30 morning workout to 8 a.m. class. You're exhausted. Um, you you learn a work ethic. You learn time management. You learn how to get. I think I I think I was a 3.9 student through high school with like a 12.50 SAT. And I think my first semester at Pepperdine, I got like a 2.4. And it was because I literally would fall asleep in class at the beginning. Didn't know. Like we... We got in trouble for under two five. Everyone got thrown in study hall. I think our entire recruiting class were all talented baseball players that uh, ended up being having it being thrown in study hall because we needed a little jolt in that area. Um, but I think it was that was the biggest adjustment for me is learning how to manage your time and learning actually what hard work is and no, no cutting any corners if you want to be good and if you want to be diligent and good in the classroom as well. And so I think going that into minor league baseball, and if you first off don't have that that cultural aspect, I think every year that you get older and experience new things, travel um, to different places, travel on planes to play different teams, um, pitching in Houston in front of a crowd that I remember as a freshman that they can drink. You know, it wasn't a dry campus like Pepperdine, and people are hooting and hollering at you and calling your names, and it was like, man, this is crazy. And being able to get all of that and those experiences and draw from that and kind of end up enjoying those things and those challenges. I think, uh, if you just kind of get put out on your own as an 18 year old, it could be very, very challenging if you don't have the right people with the right family in your corner that that team kind of provides at college. This series is much more about players like you giving advice to people coming up in your shoes, but I would just like to to interject and give some advice to anyone who hasn't gotten into college yet. who might be listening. Never take an 8am class. It's just not yeah. worth it. 
unless like unless it's the only unless you unless you absolutely have to it's just not worth it i'm with you on that i think i didn't even have time to cut my hair i think it was the only time actually my hair grew out past my nose and i look like a little red-headed surfer boy down in in uh in socal uh because i was exhausted and so 8 a.m class you're right i think i i Every baseball season, that was usually during, that was the fall, obviously, when we came in. But every baseball season, that 8 a.m. class, I would always drop it. And so that's why I had a few more credits to, to finish up once I, I left Pepperdine my junior year. Yeah, I had I did an 8 a.m. fall of my freshman year and then never again. I never took a class earlier than 11 o'clock in the morning. Smart, smart guy. You mentioned, though, you mentioned that, that tough non-conference schedule. You get into regionals. And the game you're starting is against one of those tough non-conference teams. It is against Long Beach State. What did the what did the scouting report look like before those games, particularly around those two dudes? Um, the the craziest part about it, I didn't actually remember because Tulo was so good, uh, Troy Tulowitzki. I don't remember Longoria being much of a force my freshman year until my <laughs> sophomore year uh, when he was a junior. I, he didn't get as much clout as like the. Tula Whiskey did, and, and Tulo was so good. Um, the best part of that game, you know, you're nervous as a freshman, but I just kind of loved once you that adrenaline or that nervousness turned into adrenaline, and it just locks you in. And it, it's always, I always felt actually I thrived in those situations, um, you know, from a young age because it was I was like never like I told you never the hardest thrower. A lot of times in high school, scouts came to see somebody else. And it was always those games that you end up kind of making a name for yourself because they're there, not to see you, but someone else. And um, going into that freshman year, there was like, man, I get to face Troy Tulowitzki. This guy's going to be drafted top five. This guy's, you know, getting all the talk, and you're kind of the underdog. Um, the best part, actually, about that game is I he came up. I think we were winning three zero at the time. He came up um, first and third, two outs. And back when they had the best move possible, the 31 move, you know, third to first pickoff move, I did one of those and picked the guy off at first uh, while he was still looking into the home plate. And um, with Tulowitzki sitting there with two outs and obviously get out of the inning, go back out the next inning, have to face him with no one on, hang a curveball, and he hits a 400-foot bomb to left. <laughs> for, a sub, for a solo shot, not a three-run homer. So we only went to three to one. Um, and it's kind of like it changed the whole aspect of I remember uh, just kind of coming off there with a huge sigh of relief. Like, thank goodness this guy at first base was this dumb to not be just standing on first base and let Tulo just hit no matter what. And uh, and and I it turned into a solo homer, not a three-run homer. We ended up winning the game. And um, sadly... At Pepperdine, we never made it to a super regional. We always lost that regional championship game um, that year was USC. But uh, that was a pretty good regional plan. So I, I kind of want to talk NCAA regionals in general because you played in three during your time at Pepperdine. You've been a team traveling. You've been at you were at Long Beach twice. You've also been a host. Are there any pros and cons to being the host team? Not being the host team? It, did you have a preference? I, I we were pretty darn good um, my sophomore year. And to host that regional, I think what made it tough to host regional at Pepperdine is actually not having lights and not being able to play night games and playing kind of everything in the afternoon and not drawing a huge crowd. So if we were a college team, um, you know, maybe a Vanderbilt, maybe 
even in Houston, I remember drawing huge crowds when I was there. Uh, East Carolina was a tough place to play at. Um, they had the jungle and left field that they knew everything about you. You get 50 people requesting you on Facebook that week to try to find every dirt possible that they can wear you out. Um, <laughs> it was, it was amazing. You delete them all. They'd be back up the next day. And, um, so I think if we would have had that type of home field advantage, that would have been, uh, such a great experience. Uh, I, like I said, we, we won the Friday game when I threw against Scherzer, um, Missouri, we won the Saturday game when, uh, Paul Coleman for us beat David Huff against UCLA. And then Aaron Crow came back, uh, on, he's a freshman at Missouri and beat us three zero through nine inning shutty against us, um, on Sunday. And, and then we lost on Monday as well. I think I gave one through four and we ended up losing two to zero. And, um, that we were the first team to ever let a four seed get out. And I think the next year Fresno state or something won the whole thing as a four seed in the, in a, in a regional. And so we, we paved the way for them. We like to say, but yeah, Fresno got um, hot. Yeah. And so I, I think that I would have loved to host a regional with a little bit more electric atmosphere. And I think the lights thing at Pepperdine has been a huge discussion all the time with, um, residents that kind of live on the side and on campus that haven't want those lights be shining in their backyard and things like that. And, um, they're still working on it. Uh, could I keep in touch with them a good amount? Uh, now that Danny Worth, who was my shortstop at Pepperdine is, is a hitting coach for them. And Rick Hurtensteiner, who was our third base coach is now the manager. Um, and I, I think that would have made it a lot better. I think it's tough to go travel for regional traveling to Long Beach for us isn't too tough, but there was always tough teams in there. Long Beach is always a tough team. We had USC, you know, um, I think Rhode Island was actually a decent four seed one year. And then we just, we lost UCLA, uh, my junior year when, uh, UCLA was actually pretty good. And so those West coast teams kind of beating up on each other. It always seems like it ends up happening. Um, and they stay out. Yeah, that's kind of the big criticism of, of the NCAA tournament uh, format right now is that it, it makes it very hard for multiple West Coast teams to make it to the College World Series because they're all stuck regionally, just all killing each other. Definitely. And, and I always had this argument with, I don't know if you remember the name, Ed Easley, Mississippi State catcher, um, who was a Diamondback. He actually got drafted, I think, the pick before me in the supplemental round with us. And we're good friends and he always worry out like oh another sec team won the college world series and i always made this argument you guys got this easy path you know and joking with them but uh now you know other than oregon state those years maybe fresno state uh you know it seems like that beat up on each other and, and those west coast teams kind of fizzle out mm-hmm. so after that freshman year um you know you're coming off the, being the West Coast Conference freshman of the year, you're coming off beating Troy Tulowitzki and Long Beach State. What is like? What's the exit meeting like? What's the game plan to build on that and not get kind of complacent? Where did you need to grow, and how did you improve both in your sophomore and junior year? I think it was um, you know even through the coaching staff challenging myself and others to in my in my class to take more of that leadership role. Um, you, you know, you come in, you're kind of starry eyed a little bit of guys that are a little bit older than you, you're learning from them. Um, sometimes it's better to listen than to talk, I, I believe, and, and um, absorb that in. There's obviously always that um, back in the day when you're allowed to kind of haze people and, and such uh, 
was it bad for me? I think they made me drink clam juice because I never drank alcohol. Some, some along very easy hazing, but you develop relationships with these older guys that, you know, were end up being your, your leaders and you learn from them. And I think going into that next year for me was stepping up as a leader, expecting it. Now you got uh, actual expectations kind of on your shoulder, not only to be good individually, but kind of to lead a team. And we had other guys there as well. Danny Worth, who had a good freshman year. Uh, Chad Tracy, who was a great sophomore campaign going into being a junior. And, um, you know, from Jason Dominguez, Adam Overhouse, you guys had big arms that, you know, were expected to help as well. I think it was now you're teaching, uh, you know, the freshman class coming. We had Brett Hunter, who had a big, uh, big arm, you know, that year and, you know, ended up being one of our starters. He, uh, you know, he, he came in and I remember my coach would always make me house all the recruits that kind of came. I would always have to be the people that took them out to dinner or um, had them over uh, and just kind of showing that trust in me to then develop that leadership and those relationships with those guys to kind of push the team forward and create a culture in that team um, and not just kind of be an individual thing, more so like uh, lead the team aspect into the following year. Well, your, your sophomore year, the West Coast Conference Pitcher of the Year, junior year, you're a Golden Spike semifinalist, like things on the field are going well naturally like when did you when did you start turning your attention to what your pro prospects look like when did you start hearing from clubs and what is the what's the run-up to draft day like for a college junior you know i would would, going back through that process i don't think i ever let it really absorb me i mean it was great to get attention uh but what i really really enjoyed about college baseball in contrast to minor league baseball obviously is the aspect of winning like the winning and how the culture um, you know, was built off of that and going back to like caring about every single game. And so being so, you know, absorbed in that aspect, I think it was really hard to kind of just think about uh, where I'm going to be drafting all these things until that finished. Um, and so that was a good thing, I think, which, you know, didn't allow me to be kind of distracted going into junior year. Didn't laugh, allow me to, you know, feel pressure in that aspect. I do remember, a a scout for the Cincinnati Reds uh, kind of cornering me one time and saying, are you the best pitcher on your team? And I, I said, you know, I think that's for you to determine. And he said it again to me. And I said, well, you know, I don't really want to talk about myself. And he said, if you can't tell me you're the best pitcher on your team, we'll never draft you. And kind of like made it a really, really tough conversation for me. And I think that was the like first time where I just, I didn't totally enjoy those conversations, but I, always um obviously gave them the time because i knew they were important but i always wanted to do it just to get back into uh the team aspect i really enjoyed that part of it and that was probably the biggest difference in going into pro ball was um not everyone caring in that same direction and it being a little bit more about development at times than actually winning and, and that was hard for me um and so but back to the college I, I think that that's what helped me during that year is I didn't really have to focus on what was happening draft wise uh, I just had to focus on what was in front of me well the D-backs pop you in the second round after your junior year um, you signed fairly quickly and then so per per baseball America's draft report scouts like your frame they like your track record uh, most of all they like your competitiveness which kind of you know speaks to what you were just talking about with liking the winning and stuff um, they thought it gave you more upside than, than your present stuff, your stuff at the time might have suggested. What was your scouting report on yourself when you signed? You know, 
I think I fed into it a little bit too much. I, I to be honest, going back of being that vanilla, I am who I am. Um, I remember a scout telling me one time, I think it was from the Cubs, he said if you had basically Adam's arm, Oberhowski at the time, because he was up to 95 or 96, but didn't really have the command and, and didn't really have like kind of the mentality side of it. Um, we, I think he ended up being drafted in fifth round. You had his arm, you'd be the first overall pick. And from makeup to command to all the stuff that kind of went to it. Um, I think that's where college hurt a little bit was where I think colleges are so much better now. Obviously, implementation of the data with TrackMan's rep photos and all the electronic stuff and, and pitch design um, and how I would make maybe my slider better, how I would care about, you know, uh, my my horizontal break or, you know, or vertical break of a slider or, or my curveball how I would try to get a little bit more or how I would use out of my fastball. Um, I think I got into that, put myself into a box of being very robotic mechanically just to almost turn into a dart thrower at times and not from programs I have now to obviously weighted ball treatments to um, how we move down the mound and different variable training aspects. I think velocity training can be trained for guys that at least have the ability to do so. And I think all of those things probably would have got me out of my comfort zone. Um, that would have actually made me my stuff a lot better. I think at the time I just said, yeah, I'm going to be my best self into putting a ceiling on myself of, yeah, I know my stuff's not that great, but I'm going to make it. I'm going to command every single pitch that I throw and put it on, you know, dot and at's ass every, every single time. Instead of saying, I'll kind of show you even that competitive aspect that I talked about. Um, I'll show you and I'll break through that mold that you're talking about. I don't think I really knew how to do that. And so I didn't kind of, uh, I guess, break that glass ceiling. So do you think to, to be successful in pro ball, do you think a guy needs some of that? At least some, like some increased, maybe oversized belief in themselves. Like I think on the, like on the, the opposite side of that, it's probably not, it's probably not healthy for a guy to think I'm a future hall of famer when you know that that's just that's you know you're setting yourself up for a letdown in some ways but do you think there's you need some sort of kind of bravado or or exceeded confidence to be able to to reach what is truly your ceiling Uh, i truly believe that i mean i think that phrase of fake it till you make it is in in a lot of aspects true i also think that um doing well success obviously breeds confidence and, you know, confidence, you know, breeds that, like that self-belief. And that's ultimately what you want to have is that self-belief. And I think a lot of that also comes into, um, self-evaluation. Uh, I, I think I was able to evaluate myself well at the time, yet I didn't know how to now push through that evaluation, how to get it better. I was okay with it because I was having success. And instead of saying like, even the, jumping into the big leagues after having a pretty good uh, freshman campaign, the Bailey's first year, uh, you know, minus a, a rough September, I, I think it was like, okay, you know, it'll just happen again. Instead of trying to stay ahead of the curve and trying to improve on different things, I always worked hard, but I didn't know what I was trying to improve on, I guess, is the point. And so that constant self-evaluation with also at least appearing to have that confidence, because um, especially as a pitcher, the minute you can see those shoulders slouch, the minute you see, uh, woe is me, 
I mean, those hitters smell that that blood in the water as those sharks, and they can feed off that, and they're just fighting to get up to the back rack to eventually into the box against you. And I've been on both sides of it. You know, I've been on the on the side of, man, you can't hit anything I throw, and it's a great feeling. And I've been on the side of, how the heck are you going to get yourself out because I have nothing to get you out. And a lot of that goes into confidence and self-belief in those moments and 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 kind of how you – get yourself in and out of it. Um, that's why they always talk about the mental side of the game. Uh, but there's a lot of tools out there now from a performance standpoint to obviously sports performance, uh, you know, like mental aspect coaches uh, that really help. And I think all the stuff that we have now are great things, um, you know, for the players and what they can use on their way up to. So that you sign, you get a handful of innings and, in, you know, an A ball, um, you know, finish out in high A, but that, that first full year, they send you out, they, they jump you to high A. Um, it's, it's a tale of two, two halves. You cut your ERA by almost a run and a half in your first full season between first half, second half. What, like what made the difference in that year? Was it a big adjustment? Was it just feeling out the league a little bit, learning about pro ball kind of what went, you know, how, how did you gradually get better in that season? Well, it kind of played off a little bit of, of that first season of being drafted. Uh, and they sent me for a few weeks to Yakima, um, which didn't give up a run. Uh, pitching relief, they actually asked me in when I was drafted, do you want to start and go one to two innings every single time, no questions asked, or do you want to have some fun and maybe relieve, which will be a starter next year anyways? I said, let me relieve, let me close, that'd be fun. You know, just kind of like would give me some high leverage innings eventually. And they let me do that, so I relieved the whole time. Um, I think I went to Yakima for for a few weeks. I went to South Bend for like two days, pitched two innings there, and then they jumped me into the up to Visalia and eventually into the playoffs with the Visalia team and some older guys. And uh, I think I threw I don't know, it's eighteen innings or something like that that year without giving up a run. And I was like, this thing is easy, you know. I'm fastball slider guys. I drop in a curveball every once in a while. Didn't really need to pitch and go through a lineup two, three, four times. And they first time seeing me and I can dot on corners and guys, I can expose them, you know, swinging out of the zone as, as, you know, I faced high enough competition through college that these guys weren't any better. Um, and so going back into high the next year, kind of a little false confidence of now I got to go through the lineup two, three, four times potentially um, as a starter. And uh, right at the beginning of my first month, I got shellacked. And I remember kind of thinking I could lay over that first pitch fastball. Um, you know, as a starter, I'm just going to kind of cruise through these first three innings and then I'll give them my stuff. And it was like, if I didn't dot a Nats ass, I left it over the middle. These guys were swinging and swinging early. Once they realized that through strikes, they were coming out of their shoes. And until I learned how to kind of pitch backwards and a big ass, big thing for me was um, going inside on one fastballs and not being afraid to kind of miss because the worst thing it could do would be one, one. And that was a mentality kind of taught with me through the Dimebacks is one, one. I still had probably three, three and a half pitches I could throw for a strike against you. So establish that inner part of the plate, brush guys back. How did you figure that out? Like when, how did you figure out specifically it was inside fastball? It's not, is it just a, you know, a trial and error thing is it someone you know had to tell you how do you figure out that this is the area that that i'm not doing as well as i need to be uh i mean i i figured out quickly i didn't have as much off the plate to throw like i did in college 
Um, I had you didn't a have those coach. four to eight inches. Yeah, um, and I was also I had enough aptitude kind of to see that if you're lasering the ball as a righty in the right center gap, and these guys are taking me off all day long, I'm probably not using both sides of the plate well enough. Um, pitching coach there, Wellington Cepeda, who's with the um, Marlins now, I think as their bullpen coach with Stoudemire, who was our pitching coordinator at the time. Um, they're both over there. They uh, kind of helped me with the count to go in. You know, I knew I had to go in, but if you think about like throwing inside, maybe oh oh, you're trying to maybe throw a strike and might bring it over the plate too much. So you kind of maybe guide it. If you throw it in there one oh, you're probably trying to do the same thing. Um, guys are a little bit more trying to just maybe spin and and take a gangster hack in those one oh two oh two one three one counts. And so you you kind of get into this. Okay, what's what does oh one do for you? If you can pick a pitch to get ahead, and usually with me, I drop in a curveball or slider, pitch backwards against these guys because then they would usually take those pitches instead of coming out of their shoes off the fastball. Um, grab 0-1, and all of a sudden it's like, if I miss inside, it doesn't really matter because I'm 1-1. I could still come back with three or four pitches to, to throw a strike for you. So I knew I had to go inside. I just didn't know what count probably. That was where my learning process was. And... Um, honestly, it kind of frees you up to be able to, if you have that mentality of, I don't care if I miss, I'm going to be aggressive in here. A lot of times you end up dotting that corner, uh, because you have that freedom of mind to do so. And so a lot of those times, if a kid is working on a pitch, um, even through the minor leagues, that's that count that obviously we kind of use that pitch in lower uh, leverage situations to be able to, um, kind of develop that belief in it and, then at any point when you kind of get in that flow, it can turn into any count at any situation in the game. If you'd be able to either throw that change up maybe for a guy, or for me, it was the inside fastball to command both sides of the plate because having command uh, was something that was obviously a huge uh, advantage for me. Yet if I just kind of went middle away, middle away, middle away with all pitches and cut one half of the plate, I'm not using it to my advantage. And so, that was a huge thing for me to, to kind of flip those two halves that season. Well, you get that figured out. You start using both sides of the plate. You jump to double A next year. You have a, a quality double A season, 3980 RA. The next year you're sent back to Mobile, sent back to double A. What is the mindset in, in repeating a level where you you certainly didn't dominate it? Like you and then you obviously respond well when you went back, but headed into your second season at, uh, in Double A, what was on your mind? What was the the goal there? Is there frustration with that, or is there unfinished business? How did you approach it? You know, I, I think that to be honest, be drafted in the second round. Looking back now, um, because I'd always had this like ascending type thing. I always was going up, up, up through college. You're, you know, you get better every year. Um, you're always having success a little bit more every year um, through the minor leagues. It was like, uh, obviously, I, I did well at levels, yet I didn't absolutely dominate them the whole time. And you have that false sense of like uh, that self-valuation I'm talking about at times. And I wouldn't call it entitlement for me, but some may as well as like, why, why am I going back here? Because I was an all-star that year. If you look back, a 4-year A, double A, the Mobile is not that great. <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay. Uh, it's a pitcher's league. And, um, uh, for me, I found out I could really expose guys with like kind of, 
first pitch just getting ahead because people had a much different mentality than they did in high where they just gangster acted everything. They actually had an approach. So I was able to get ahead of guys very, very early. Um, so going back into that season, I was actually, before I realized all this and realized honestly that Reno is, is kind of the death for a pitcher. And I was lucky to go back to mobile and there's a reason for it. Um, I was like, I was upset about it. Uh, I was never someone that went and told anyone that it kind of just drove me. So it was a good thing. Um, but I remember going back there once I'm in a position or anywhere that I go, I dive full in and give kind of everything I got. But I remember going into that season, like, why am I going back here? I was in big league camp again. Why am I doing this, uh, in my head and going into that season, actually my first month wasn't that great. I think it was a three year a, um, you know, at the repeating level, I'm 23 ish or just turning 24 at the time. And I remember my boss now, like I had mentioned, Dan Carlson came up to me and said, uh, I just have a question for you. And we have a very close relationship. Now we ended up having a very close relationship through that year. Um, and so whatever he kind of said, hit home and he just said, why do you want to just be good? Why don't you want to be great? And kind of just left it at that, let kind of like ticking time bomb kind of sink in, knew how I ticked, knew what kind of drove me, knew I'd be super competitive through it. And, uh, you know, let that kind of just, I guess, sink in. And I think the next month or 35 inch, something like that, struck out 50, walked one or two um, in my way to obviously getting that call to the big leagues. How does that happen, though? Like how, what is the difference between being good and being great? He, he pushed me out of my comfort zone. He, he, the, the mechanical thing for me, which was played off of that mentality was, um, he knew that I was uber competitive. He knew I was probably in some extent just going through the motions without knowing I was going through the motions. Um, it was an extra challenge. Like I said, a little ticking time bomb in there that, uh, he was able to kind of just let it sink in and let he knew it would absolutely drive me um, attention to detail, attention to what um, the leadership and the being the guy in that mound that everyone wanted to play behind every single day. And I think that going into, uh, you know, those those next few months, like mechanical thing, I, like I was saying, was he he pushed me to get out of my comfort zone. So not to be vanilla. That was the first year, actually. My velocity started like jumping 93s, 94s, and uh, he wanted me to feel out of control. He said, I want you to be as out of control as you can feel, knowing that I would never walk people and still never be out of control. Um, and I almost felt like I, I got faster down the mound. I got into great power positions, and it, it created an, an ultra-aggressive mentality that I was always on top of a hitter. That was always coming at you. Whatever pitch I threw, I wasn't throwing at 80%. I was coming at you 100% with a kind of bulldog mentality. And um, it, going back to, like I said, you just knew how I ticked and sparked that competitiveness drive in me to, I think, just pay attention to all things and not go through the motions. Once things start clicking, it, did you have any indication that you were going to get jumped from A to the big leagues? I didn't actually. I, it's funny about that talk was um, Matt Tora and Wes Romer had just actually gone up in the last few weeks to AAA. Um, I was like, you know, they, I have a plan for everything. You never see this until you're on the coaching side. But I remember being upset about that in my mind. 
um, and thinking like, what's going on here? Um, and so when they called me in, I was thinking, how oh, they're sending me to AAA and I'm actually not super happy about it. Um, in my mind. <laughs> and, uh, like again, I, for better or for worse, I'd never be someone that actually went out and said that I always kind of went with it, absorbed it, let it drive me, et cetera. But DC, Dan Carlson brought me in, um, Rico Bronio, Turner Ward and DC just said it and said, um, it's the call that you want, not the one that you think you're getting. And I kind of let that absorb for a second. And he said, your next start's going to be, you know, in, in St. Louis against the Cardinals. And I was like, what? You know, it kind of let this sink. We had a few tears together. Um, special moment. But never in my wildest dreams, actually, at that point. In AAA, you always like, oh, who's the next guy? Who's the next guy? But never in my dreams there did I think that I was... Um, for some reason, skipping AAA and heading to the big leagues, and it was a pretty special moment. The worst part was that they actually told me that I couldn't tell anyone until after the game. And, uh, you know, you're leaving tomorrow, but you can't tell anyone because they haven't announced anything yet. And so I had to sit there the whole game behind and do the chart while not telling anyone, even my family, until the game ended. (laughs) So how long from when you get the call to how long until you actually have to start taking the the game the big league game seriously like okay i gotta start figuring out how i'm gonna get the cardinals out i have to you know actually like once you get through i've got to tell all my family and i've got to get to arizona and i've got to you know do all the stuff that comes with that call up when do you actually get to focus on okay i actually have to play a baseball game against the st louis cardinals uh you know the craziest part about um getting that call and in that moment was I had just thrown a game against Mississippi, the Mississippi Braves. Um, it was a day game after getting rained out the day before. And I had gone through a streak like no other. I mean, like I said, that it was just a great month and a half um, of pitching. And I went to that game and felt like a little sluggish. I had warmed up about 20 pitches the day before, before it got rain, got shut down. They had debated not letting me start the next day. I can see now they're probably trying to keep me on that, you know, schedule to then um, be able to pitch in the big leagues the following one. And for, I think I hit two batters in the second inning, which I think I hit three batters all year on a usual, I wish I hit more, honestly, would have created a little more intimidation probably, <laughs> but I hit two batters in that in that game. I was all over the place. The second inning, I gave up one run on like 27 pitches, and I think I threw like 17 sliders to get out of it. My fastball command was going up by people's chins. My arm felt like it was late and way behind me. My body was rushing like no other that day, and I just couldn't feel it. And it was the first time in my life, that Y word, like I never felt it again ever in my life that I felt like I did like, can I throw a fastball over the plate? And I, like I said, I had to throw 17 sliders to get out of the inning. And ironically, I, I'm batting the next inning. Mike Miner's pitching. He throws the first one at my head. And I barked back at him. You know, if you're going to hit me, hit me. Um, I remember hitting a line shot to shortstop and getting caught. And I was pissed because I didn't get on base. And I went back in on the dugout and I slugged a Red Bull and I came back out and it was like, you dotted an ass ass every single pitch. It that feeling never came back, and went through five more innings that that day, kind of dotting everything, everything going where you want to, throw a great game, and uh, you know get that call two days later, 
And ironically, that, that feeling comes back like, what if I start walking people again? What if I don't have that command? What if I get that feeling out there again? So to the point of trying to prepare for the Cardinals and stuff, honestly, I didn't have any knowledge of how to do so. Didn't have any knowledge of going through video or, or, or how to do that on a big league level. You're just show up to St. Louis. I was pitching a 12, 30 day game. I think it was 105 degrees outside. And I know I'm stepping on a big league mound for the first time. And honestly, it was a surreal feeling. Um, my legs, I never felt like I had my legs beneath me. Um, I remember striking out like one of the first two batters or whatever. And I was like, ah, this is, ah, this is easy. And Pools came up in the first ball I threw over and, and, you know, tried to steal a strike and he lasered it foul for a homer. And then I was like, okay, well, he doesn't think a fastball is coming again. I threw it middle away again. He lasered it over shortstop and I went 2-0 to Matt Holiday and threw him a changeup which I don't even know how I, or why I threw because it's my fourth best pitch. He hit a double in the gap and scored a run. And I was like, okay, woof. Now you gave up your first run in the big league, settled down. Somehow I was able to get my legs under me um, and went shut out for the rest of that, of that game. But to the scouting poor part of it, I had a great catcher, Chris Snyder. Uh, you know, a lot of people probably didn't view him as the greatest catcher. I thought he was the, the best dude. Uh, and absorbed me in and reeled me in from day one because I had I was in the fifth inning, guy second and third, and Matt Holiday up again. And I knew that he didn't know me that well other than catching me in big league camp. And, and uh, I had a one and two count, and he, and he called a curveball, and I shook, and he ran out to me. And instead of kind of bullying me or being a, you know, a, this is what you're going to throw or, or whatever, he asked me, what's your out pitch? And I said, it's my slider. And he said, we could throw that. But he's a great low ball side to side hitter. He really struggles with 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 depth and a speed change. Your curveball is good enough. Put it on the plate. We'll strike him out. We'll do whatever you want. But I'm telling you, your curveball is good enough. Just put it on the tip of the plate. And he kind of instilled that confidence in me. Threw it right where that was. Luckily, swung right out of the top fit. Got out of the inning. That was the end of the debut. Um but it was, I thought it was really cool that he came out to me. He didn't just shake his head, basically like, put another finger down, let me get whacked in the gap and spoil it. He was a competitor on the field, and this guy's a rookie, and we're going we're gonna to go through this together. And so he was basically my scouting report. Is He knew the team to guide me through that game. So this is a dumb question, but hear me out. How much harder is the big or like it's pitching in the big leagues like mm-hmm. it's an obvious question but what is the hardest part of that just obviously hitters are better the best hitters in the world but how does that manifest itself in what you're trying to do up there in your personal game plan versus what you were doing in in double a is there stuff that like takes away or stuff that you notice right away like because i mean you you turn in a, a quality season in your big league debut mm-hmm. but is there stuff that you notice like off the bat like this isn't working as well you know i, I when I felt strong through that whole year, um, you know, I, I was really flowing well from the double A, you know, uh, being with Dan. And, and I remember, I think it was a time in July that Stoudemire Jr. had come up to me and said, hey, we need to cut that long toss down a little bit. You're going to throw close to 200 innings this year. And I said, oh, you know, yeah, of course, blah, 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 blah. And I was just thinking, like, I got like a 190 array right now. Why the hell am I changing anything uh, in my mind? And so I kept going and kept going and kept going. And, and I had a... It even could be a false sense of confidence, false sense of belief. I was rolling so well 
along with, I think it helped at the time of the, of, I mean, I, we didn't have a great team. Uh, you don't have a lot of media attention. It's your first time going up there. You don't have a huge, a lot of expectations, even though I, I like to say those things drove me being in the bigger moment. I think it took a lot of pressure off that first season as well. And I'd never really gone through like kind of adversity yet. You know, I'd gone through it in spurts in the Meyer leagues. Um, but through college, through ascending through the Meyer leagues to, um, having a great start to a big league, uh, you know, kind of campaign, I think I never really had to deal with adversity. And so September hit, um, I no longer like felt great, uh, kind of to that long toss thing and telling you need to take a little break. Again, I felt like my body was exhausted. My arm was behind me and I think I gave up 16 home runs or something in September and it went from commanding everything to everything over the middle of the plate, feeling like I'm throwing puff balls up there and your, your confidence gets shook pretty good. And you realize obviously that mistakes get hit and the more tentative you are, there's a difference between, even if it's only 92, there's a difference between 92 with conviction behind it. Even if you miss your spot to 92 that you're just trying to guide up there. And a lot of times I thought that I dotted Nat's ass in these games that I did well. And I go back and look at film and, and, uh, I realized that I was just throwing it with conviction. I would miss up over the middle of the plate and people would swing through it at times. Um, because there's a little extra life at the end of the ball when you have that confidence. And so, you know, I, I was taught that, you know, through, even through Dan Heron and Zach Granke at times that you go look through film on what hitters do bad. A lot of times we go through film and, and, see like, oh, they're batting 400, Prince Field is batting 400 on sliders, you know, um, and go watch all the home runs he's hit. We'll go out, watch all, just like kind of watching BP, watch all the outs they make on pitches that are kind of missed right down the middle, um, you know, kind of ends up instilling that confidence in you and seeing in areas that obviously you can expose them, but also how they're, we give them a little bit too much credit, I guess. Um, but through that first year is tough because I was the first time ever dealing with adversity and not feeling my best. It wasn't until Stoudemire Jr. Um, came back and said, Hey, you're not throwing a bullpen this week. So I always thought more was more. I never knew the less is more, you know, type aspect. I was pushed through it, lifted harder, uh, threw more, threw more bullpen pitches. And he finally said, Hey, you're cutting out. You're going to play catch with me this week. You're not throwing a bullpen, you're going to throw a flat ground with me, and you're going to jump back up there. And that was my only really good start in September was when I threw eight innings to give two runs. Ironically, lost to Kershaw and the Dodgers, but uh, came back and, and everything kind of came back that, uh, you know, that start. It's tough to beat that Kershaw guy sometimes. It was. It was. Um, but uh, I, I went through actually a decent streak of, of starting pitchers, and – I, I think it was Linscombe three or four times. Um, late toast when he was really good uh, or throwing gas. I had Ubaldo Jimenez twice. I had Strasburg. I had Kershaw. Um, I, first hit was off Ari Dickey, knuckleball, um, when he's with the Mets. I went through, I don't know how I got on the number one starter train because obviously I was not the number one starter. It was like you were the Friday night guy. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I got on that on that train of all these guys that threw, um, Linscombe wasn't Linscombe at the time. He's about to 90, 94, but, um, all these guys from Strasburg, Ubaldo, they're just pumping 99s and hundreds at me. Uh, and 
it was a it was a pretty special run to be able to pitch against them and, and hit against them. It was, it was pretty cool. Who'd you hit your dinger off in 2011? Julius Shashin. Tried to sneak oh, that's 89. A good, that's a good one. He tried to sneak 89, 2-1 pitch inside. Wasn't too smart. We joked about it when we were both with the with San Diego in 2017. Good on you guys. That's a good. That's a good. That's a good one to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as sadly, I got sent down the next day though. <laughs> that's tough. That's a tough beat. Yep. <laughs> tough scene there. Um, yep. But as far as as far as 2011, you know how how did you envision 2011 turning out versus you know how it turned out? What was the the big difference there with? The, the comparison between, you know, you have this great double-A season and then a quality big league debut, and then 2011 is, and, you know, and, and 2012, too, is a up and down between triple-A and the big leagues, mostly triple-A, and, you know, kind of a tough scene in, in both Reno and Arizona. You know, it was awesome going into, I mean, we'd, we'd switch from um, Josh Burns to Kevin Towers, um, and Kevin Towers... Um, came in the last month in September and was the only time he saw me obviously when in pitching poorly, um, going into spring training in 2011, I was actually really close with Kurt Gibson. And, um, I think he just kind of liked some of like my mentality and we, we grew our kind of relationship through that. And, um, he came up to me and said, Hey, it's your job to lose. Cause we brought in like Armando Galarraga, um, we brought in Zach Duke. We brought in guys that like it looked like, man, these are your established guys. Like, where do I fit into this five man rotation? Because we had Joe Saunders and Ian Kennedy and Daniel Hudson. And uh, I remember him coming up to me. And if he didn't do this, it probably would have worked out a little bit different at the beginning. But he came up to me and said, Hey, uh, Barry, this is yours to lose. You know, that this is your fifth, fourth, or fifth spot. And created the confidence in there. I went into spring training and, and uh, really just wanted to compete. And um, kind of came in there with a very uh, hardworking, like kind of focused mentality. And said, "This is going to be my job, and I'm not letting it go." And I don't. Not everyone actually kind of knows about this, but with about I think two two and a half weeks to go in camp, um, like a one five year, it was best spring training I ever had. Um, and Gibby brought me into his office. I said, I, uh, I just want to let you know, you made the team. You're going to be in the three or four spot. Um, you made the team. I, we can't tell anyone yet because we still haven't decided on a, a few guys who are going to be in those other spots. And I don't want to deal with the media hoopla right now, but I just want to let you know, you earned this a hell of a spring training. Um, you're leading our staff right now and you'll be in the three or four spot. You made this team. And so I leave that meeting and, and, uh, I knew that I would still go through every one of my starts and have immediate questions of saying, Hey, you're the only one with options left. Um, you will, you know, you'll probably be sent down. How do you feel about that? And I had to kind of play coy and, and, uh, just kind of give them the answers that kind of sounded right. And, uh, I remember with about a week to go, about a week and a half after Gibby had already told me a week to go, and, and Zach Duke gets a line drive off his off his throwing hand and breaks his hand. And there were your five starters right there because Zach was no longer in contention. And um, they basically had said every conversation after that, well, like, how do you feel now? Now that Zach did this, you know, you're probably on the team. And, and every 
the whole reason to everyone in the media, I had never, ever let this bother me before, was I made the team because this had happened. And I, w I couldn't come out and actually tell him that Gibby told me I earned this before. I felt like I actually slided for the first time and I couldn't defend myself and because I didn't want to sell out my manager. And uh, that was actually a tough time. And the first time I felt like I let everything else out of my control bother me. And so I went into my last two starts against, the, I think it was the A's and the White Sox in spring training. I got absolutely shellacked, gave like three or four homers. And my last start out before season started against the White Sox at, at, at Glendale and went into that season on like a, almost like a downturn instead of flying high, which I was two weeks before. And going into my first start against the Cubs, um, you know, I pitched well on and off, but gave up gave up four runs through six, got a no decision um, and kind of flowed back and forth. And it was kind of like Zach Duke was possibly coming back here or there. Um, I, that was starting to be mentioned. And, and instead of my focus being on just, Hey, winning a ball game for my guys, it was now starting to defend myself or having to um, prove my worth so that I'm not the guy sent down listening to what the media is saying, you know, do you feel the pressure for this? Do you feel pressure for that? And kind of diving into those conversations instead of, uh, focusing on everything that I can control. And so it was a time that I think I let things affect me that, um, were out of my control and, and affect me on the baseball field, uh, that to go along with, like I had mentioned of, uh, not knowing the adjustments that I needed to make, possibly. Um, a couple of those two things together, and it wasn't the start to the season you know, that I kind of wanted. You get dealt to the Angels in 2012 in the midseason. Um, is there any optimism being traded for? Like, Is there some credence to the, the fresh start theory or fresh start mindset? You know, it's a weird thing to be traded because you forget, first off, that someone else wants you. You just think about at the beginning, like someone doesn't want you and you're leaving your first team. You're, you're like, you're, um, until yes, you obviously think, Oh, I got a fresh start. I can do this. I can do that. But then you realize you get over there and not everyone doesn't know you the same. Um, you know, you don't have the same coach staff. Not everyone maybe has your back the same. So you go through all those different emotions. It was honestly great for me. Um, I ended up throwing well with them and obviously getting called up at the end. I mean, Jerry DePoto was over there who was with the Diamondbacks before. Um, but it was just a weird feeling. I, I, I didn't know how to feel because you were leaving a team that, like, you had your boys and and a team that, the only team I knew at the time. Um, but it was a time going to the Angels that I wish, uh, that was my kind of one regret, I would say. I mean, other than going through how 2011 went, like, that's just being youthful and not, and not understanding how to handle situations and adversity at times. But going in with the Angels is, you know, I actually threw really well and very sparingly role. Like I only was up there, I think, through September because Weaver was ailing a little bit, but also competing for a Cy Young. And I was kind of there as backup. So I mopped up every inning. I don't think I gave up a run until the last I pitched the last day of the year. And I gave up six runs in, in the last inning against the uh, Mariners. And, and so kind of like that spring training in 2011, um, you know, flowing into the 2011 season, that was a horrible sour taste I left in the mouth that now I'm worried about, oh, how does Sosha think or Butcher think? 
you know, going into the following season. Like, look at what I just left them looking at. So again, worrying about things that are kind of out of control. And going into 2013, I remember a triple-A pitching coach pulling me aside and kind of going through a mediocre start um, to spring training because they gave me every opportunity, actually. At, and now that I saw it to make that team, they pitched me and, you know, started me in a lot of the games at the beginning. Uh, but I was, again, we had Tommy Hansen and Joe Bland and, you know, you had Weaver, C.J. Wilson, Urban Santana. Uh, you just think these are your solidified guys instead of having that compete type mentality that I had to start the 2011 spring training. Um, I obviously missed that as I was going through and, and going through that adversity that again, I don't think I was prepared for enough because like we had talked about through high school, through college, through everything, through the success, there was never that downturn of extended failure. And, you know, everyone had, told you your bulldog, your bulldog, your bulldog. And the first time you got to see failure, uh, don't really know how to handle it. And so not the fight or flight mentality. I wouldn't say I went all the way to the flight because I didn't even know I was doing it. Um, but it was kind of like, I was just so content in being where I was going to be at. Fair to say you were kind of burnt out. Uh, I mean, a little bit, I, I feel like I'm mentally exhausted. I didn't know I was doing this, you know, I, cause I was never one that verbally had excuses. I never one that came out and said, you know, poor me. I was just kind of like burnt out of always compete, 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 compete and getting after it. And then, uh, when I did, when I wasn't shown the results maybe, or I would go through adversity, I actually didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to pick it up and go again. Cause I didn't have enough of it before. Um, I think it's prepared me to be a great coach. To be honest, I think it's prepared me, um, later in life to be a pretty darn good father and things like that and help out. Um, but I don't think I caught onto it fast enough through my baseball career and made the adjustments quick enough. And so in 2013, even when I got sent up, I had my start right before it wasn't great and didn't even know why I was being sent up. I be pushed. I was put in the bullpen where I would like throw once every two weeks and once every 10 days. And I think I threw like the 17th, 18th and 19th inning against the A's when I gave up the walk off to Brandon Moss. And, and I always felt like I was the last guy on the team. And I, those are my regrets. Instead of saying, hey, make, be the best long reliever there is because there's been a lot of people that have made a hell of a career doing so or find your way back to the you know, fifth, sixth star, however it was, living in the moment and being present in that moment always. Um, I think I, I didn't know how to do that then. It was kind of like always looking over my shoulder to either be sent down or, or not knowing how to be uh, preparing myself every single day to be a long reliever and uh, get my touch and feels in. So I was always sharp. Um, I, I think that maybe if there was someone that was able to, to either show me that, or I, w I was a little bit better equipped in those areas at a younger age, I think I, I could have excelled there. Um, I just, honestly, I, I was, didn't have the mentality for it at that time. I was kind of going through just this, weird mental state that I didn't even know I was in. And so uh, th those are the regrets kind of going back is I wish I would dove in and say, I'm going to be the best long reliever ever. Every time you give me the ball, I'm getting those guys out. And even though I thought I was doing that, you look back and you weren't. Well, after that tough 2013, though, you start making winter ball in Latin America, winter ball in Mexico, a regular part of your career. And eventually you're also playing in the, the Mexican Summer League as well. What was the... 
what did playing in the Mexican league do for you in terms of just your mentality and your enjoyment of baseball over the, the course of those few years? Uh, to put it simply, it, it brought it all back. It brought all the love back for baseball. Um, took the business part out of it. Obviously they treat you like a big leaguer over there, but that was uh, hardly the point. It was, it felt like a family again. They cared about winning, going back to that college aspect of winning every single game and the importance being in it. I didn't know how crazy winter ball like executives and all these people actually were about like, Hey, you don't do well. You're in, you're out and all these things. I just enjoyed the setting so much and diving into the culture and the people that because of that atmosphere and that culture that I truly believe is, is really, really important in winning teams and winning clubhouses. Um, that's what made it fun for me. I mean, we were first place all year long. We had great players. We went to game seven. Um, you know, we, we won game seven on our turf. Like I had said that, you know, they storm the field. They, uh, lift you up like Rudy, you party all night. I remember think partying with like our teammates and parade down the, down the street till about 9am. I had a 10 30 flight, walked onto the, on the flight and back home in Phoenix, you know, by 1130 and hadn't slept a wink. And it was, it was such a cool thing to enjoy with people that really enjoyed it as well. Um, from time, from learning, like obviously more in depth Spanish and trying to do interviews in Spanish and guys really, really enjoying that from the team and, and kind of just treating you like another brother, uh, really, really helped me enjoy, um, you know, baseball down in Mexico and brought me back year after year after year. What were the biggest differences kind of on the field? Is the game, how is the game played differently in, in, you know, cause like the Mexican, the Mexican summer league, the Mexican winter league are classified as triple a. How is the, how is the actual on field product different? Is your style, does your style of pitching have to be different? Um, I learned very quickly. There's two things you learned that, uh, foreign guys that come in are usually guys that are, uh, you know, from especially the Hermosillos and the big market teams are guys that are either big leaguers or, you know, that, that 4A type player that are going to big league camp and you usually spin them to death. You know, they come down to try to hit homers off fastballs and you learn that part of it. And then the older Mexican hitter, because Mexican players throw so many breaking balls, they're such good breaking ball hitters and they have slower bats that you pound them inside over and over and over and over. And, once I learned the kind of the trend of those two aspects of like the two different hitters, um, I kind of fit the mold. Honestly, no one really changed off of that. Uh, I, I also think that um, there's a high quality of player in the winter league. I do think summer for the most part actually has a pretty quality uh, close to triple A. I wouldn't say that I would say some teams like the Tijuana teams that were on were definitely triple A teams. They're just a little bit older. I mean, when I got there, it was me, Ineski Betancourt, Jose Contreras, Miguel Olivo. You know, like these guys are all salty veterans, and they're obviously a little bit out of, you know, past their prime. Those but dudes broke into the big leagues when I was in like elementary school. It was phenomenal. <laughs> it was awesome. And, uh, you know, we had that team, and then the next year we had, um, you know, Hector Ambries, Alex Nabia, Horacio Ramirez, um, myself. Betancourt again, Miguel Olivo, um, Wama Apogadaka. Like we, uh, there's a few more too. Alex Romero, um, guys that have played in the in the big leagues, some for a few years, 
And they were kind of just all in that 30-year-old range that when they started to filter that 29, 30-year-old out of baseball. Um, For any listeners that haven't, like Mexican Winter League TV is a great buy because it is like, a, oh, hey, that guy, paradise. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And uh, I would say like as a whole, the league's a little bit better in winter because um, there's teams in summer that just don't, you know, there's more teams and they just don't get the same like, parity that there's, I mean, Tijuana, we were so much better than other teams uh, other than maybe Mexico city and, and Monterey and, and some of the big market teams, but winter baseball was awesome. And the quality of baseball was really, really good. Um, sometimes honestly, the, the best teams down in winter baseball were actually filled with a lot of like in the independent league guys. And that's the only reason that was good for them is not only because there's really good guys actually independent ball at times, but those guys would stay all year round and they're kind of playing for their livelihood and for that next season every single year. Um, some of the guys that would come down to the bigger market teams at times knew they were going to big league camp, knew they were going to be just fine, knew they were where they were going to be, and, and kind of just went down to get at bats and get in and get out. And so they didn't always actually have as much success as they probably could have. Um, you know, they didn't dive into the league as much, but. Uh, there's a quality of baseball down in Mexico that I would say the big difference is I thought that there'd be a lot of like base running, base stealing. Um, I don't know why I thought that in down in Mexico. I, I love that, that no one stole bases, only foreign players stole foreign people or foreign imports um, stole bases. And so anytime you got like a, a guy, um, a native player on base, they never stole. Those and old so guys aren't me, trying to run. They're not trying to run at all. I didn't realize, I think, my first year that they're all like 38, 36. You know, I didn't realize there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of veteran players throughout the league. And so there wasn't a lot of base stealing, which just takes that aspect of baseball out a little bit and lets you calm down, just kind of focus on the hitter. So you get a few years in Mexico in, you hop back into affiliated for a few stints, and then 2018, um, you, you wrap it up. What what kind of sealed it for you is it was time to, to hang up the spikes, but then get into coaching. Um, I had been traded from Tijuana to Cancun, um, in 2018 and call that one, the vacation swap. It it was, I, I wish it could have been that. Um, but Fernando Valenzuela, uh, senior and junior were our owners and president of the team. And, uh, they kind of brought me over there. We had lost in the championship that year. Um, we had two seasons in one for that, for that year. So they went to a soccer style format and there's playoffs through June and like a championship in the middle of June. And then you'd start a week later, you start a new season. Um, kind of like the, how they do in the soccer down there. And, um, through the first year, uh, you know, they expect you when they pay you as a foreign player that if you're getting paid the highest on the team or, or up there that you're going to be throwing all the time. And so I went and I threw um, game one and game five of the championship series. And then we had a day off and there was game six. I had flew them. I had told them before the season that, hey, on, on June 16th, my my brother is getting married and I'm in his wedding. Um, telling you now, just in case there's conflict, etc. Um, I had written my contract, the whole shebang. Um, that time comes up. It just so happens. It's, it's the world series. 
you know, of, of, of the season. Um, and I pitched game one, game five. I threw, I flew back the next morning, uh, went to the wedding for game six. Um, we have been up three to two. We lost game six. And so they said, Hey, we need you back. And so I had pitched obviously two days before I threw, I think it was like 108 pitches through eight and a third, um, when we won and they flew me back. I went from, I was in Tahoe, Lake Tahoe. I went an hour drive from Lake Tahoe to Reno at three 30 in the morning. I had a five 30 flight, went a uh, flight from Reno to LAX, LAX to Mexico city, Mexico city to Yucatan, got into Yucatan at seven 45. The game was at eight Oh five. Um, I got to the field at about eight ten. The game had already started. They gave me a little shot of B12 and Volterran. They rubbed my arm down, and I was in there by the bottom of the second with the bases loaded, two outs. <laughs> and and uh, I, threw, I threw five and a third. Um, we were up going into the ninth. We are up three to two. And our closer gave up a run, make three three. We lost in the, in the bottom of the 14th. And, um, season was over through there. Um, I had thrown two more games, um, a week later when the season started again and Mike Bell had actually called and asked me to knew I was there. I'd always kept in touch with Dan Carlson, who's pitching coordinator. Um, like I'd mentioned and Mike and DC had called and said, Hey, would you be willing to come back? We need a spot in AAA. And it was just getting, I think hard family wise at that time. I was no longer, living with my family in San Diego and just crossing the border every day in Tijuana. I was a five hour flight away with two kids at home and, um, I was healthy. I was still able to pitch. I don't know if it was the caliber to pitch in the big leagues again, but it was still, um, you know, I, I think I got worn down from all the innings, you know, that was the good and bad of, of going, you know, to Mexico all the time is I think I threw 252 innings in one season. Um, but and played two Caribbean series, but the experiences are, you know, priceless. And so I think with the wear and tear with along with the family being at home, um, it was an easy time just to kind of obviously come back to the States, come back, take the opportunity of the Dimebacks. And then eventually, um, in talking with Mike and, and Dan Carlson, that was where they were trying to shift me is basically seeing me as a coach and, um, brought me back to basically ask me that, let me play out my last time in the States. Um, they were awesome to me, uh, through the end of it, even when they like roster spots were, you know, like, I guess ended up getting filled. They put me on the phantom at the time. They were still great with me and my family and basically said, we brought you back because we think you're going to be an awesome coach and kind of transitioned in me, gave it, put it on, um, on my plate to kind of digest my family. And we just kind of saw it as a life full circle, kind of God's work, bringing, bringing us back to Dimebacks and, you know, started where, uh, obviously career began and, and with the same great people that were actually my coaches coming up, uh, the opportunity was just kind of too tough to pass up. So, um, you know, heading into 2021, I mean, hopefully things go smoothly as far as baseball, we got some, the day we're recording, got some great vaccine news. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully you are, you're out there, you know, coaching someone this year, uh, doing For some sure. work, but um, to, to take it kind of full, full circle, what do you, you know, if you could have a conversation with, you know, 21 year old Barry getting out of Pepperdine right before you sign, what would you, you know, sit that guy down and tell him and kind of what do you tell your, you know, what, what do you tell your recent college and high school signees about life in the minor leagues? You know, I, I think the 
part of, of learning the aspect of like, like being cultured, don't uh, be scared to kind of dive in and experiment uh, not only on the baseball side, but to enjoy the aspect of all guys around you to enjoy um, all the new, new things that kind of come your way. Don't let them discourage you. Don't let them, um, you know, kind of beat you down more. So kind of take that, that time in. And like I talked about through Mexico and those things, um, that culture aspect of it uh, really brought enjoyment to me. And, you know, from the, on the baseball side of things, I think, I tell them when teams do well, individuals do well. And we try to create a, as good an atmosphere and, and culture uh, that we can in any given moment and uh, kind of choose things to bring those guys together. I think when they choose to enjoy their teammates and not just uh, the individual aspect of it, I, I really think that uh, guys end up doing really, really well throughout their seasons as well. Barry, I've got a quick rapid fire for you, and then I'll let you get out of here. All righty. Favorite minor league ballpark? Uh, Reno, actually, even though I hated pitching there. Tough spot to pitch. Great ballpark, though. Right across mm-hmm. the street from that casino. It's wonderful. Uh, yep. Favorite big league ballpark? Um, AT&T. Is it still AT&T, Giants? I think. Or is it Oracle so, now, too. or is that the Warriors? I can't remember. That's the Warriors. AT&T, awesome. Uh, sneaky second is PNC. At Pittsburgh is really, really cool backdrop at the bridge. Uh, PNC is awesome as well. They're both on my bucket list. Best hitter you ever faced? I uh, would probably have to say Albert Pujols. Best pitcher you ever faced? Um, Clayton Kershaw. Best food spot in Major League Baseball or Minor League Baseball? Oh, I Cincinnati, maybe Clubhouse with uh, what are the darn sandwiches in Cincinnati? Like the, gosh darn. It's a tough one. The Whatever it is, I would like to try it. Yes, the chili in Cincinnati and the, the darn uh, sandwiches in Cincinnati. I forget what they're called. But Cincinnati Clubhouse, they're really, really good, which is crazy to stay over or say over all the steakhouses you possibly mentioned throughout the way. Yeah, best food you ate in Mexico? Um, the street tacos right next to our hotel called Taco Haas. Amazing. Sounds fantastic. Last one. If you could tee it up at one PGA event that isn't the Masters, what's your pick? Because the Masters Waste is too easy. Phoenix Open. Have you played the? Because you you live in Arizona. Have you played the course? Many a times. Um, best round there is a sixty three. Um, but I I caddied for my financial advisor once with Kevin Nod or group in it. Um, he had he had talked to me about actually baseball and and the 16th hole and how they kind of go towards each other, like, and, and pitching in front of 50,000 people. And how, how would you do that? You know, it makes me nervous to step in, inside the arena, the 16th hole. And I always told them. So the craziest thing is pitching in giant stadium at 1230 in the afternoon, you get 45, 50,000 people, you know, people at AT&T park and everyone at Hoot and Holler at you when the giants were good. And it's all white noise. It's kind of Kevin Costner cleared the mechanism. When you got the Diamondback Stadium, when we weren't very good, and you got 5,000 people in there, and you got one guy yelling, hey, Barry, you suck, you hear that one guy. <laughs> and so I told him, make it white noise. Walk into that 16th hole, pump the whole crowd up. Don't don't be the guy to step away from the ball. Make sure they're all on their feet and they're all making white noise for you. I promise you it'll all, it'll all change. And so Kevin and I have kept in, in touch over the years, actually, and he does it every single time now. So now, now I think about it all the time. And now all I want to do 
that I told him is I want to beat him in that tournament. But I tried to qualify two years. I missed out by three strokes one year. And uh, when I shot a 66 in the Monday qualifier, missed out by one stroke uh, four years ago. So, oh, man. Well, I hope you get we're getting, in. We're getting close. We're getting close. That would be the tournament because uh, I just love the atmosphere of all the fans. You got to start walking in your putts like Kevin Na. That is a very awesome thing to do. We've, we've done all that. I think I've done the early walk too many times, though, when it lips out. So you got to make sure they're in. I think Kevin knows they're in a little bit more than what I know I'm in. I, I That is probably safe to say. Barry <laughs> Enright, thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it, brother. You got it. That's it for our episode with Barry Enright. Huge thanks to Barry for taking the time. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Rate and leave a review if you're on Apple Podcasts. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday, so stay tuned in two weeks for our next episode. And remember, it's always a great time to be subscribed to BaseballAmerica.com for all amateur, prospect, and college baseball news. Uh, Until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.